All right. Well, let's turn together in God's Word this morning to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2, of course, here we turn to, return to the book of Revelation as we consider verses 12 to 17 this morning. And while you're turning there, I wonder how many of you have known someone who has enabled destructive behavior in someone's life out of a misguided love for them. Where they refuse to confront and condemn what the person is doing to themselves and to others. Well, I've known myself parents who have allowed their adult children to live at home while abusing alcohol and drugs while wasting days away without working or shacking or partying with other troubled adults. And what do they need to hear? They need to hear that this isn't true love. Enabling them to live this way is not helpful, but it is destructive. And by tolerating this behavior, you are actually encouraging them to continue it, and you're endangering yourself in the process. But brothers and sisters, we face the same problem in the church with a willingness to tolerate sinful behavior out of a mistaken desire to love them rather than loving them enough to, re, to rebuke and reprove and correct those in the church who are going astray in their walk with Christ. Well, it's this problem that Christ addresses this morning in his letter. So let us then see what we can learn from his words to the church. Here again, Revelation 2, verses 12 to 17 and to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things says him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Brothers and sisters, let us once more go before our Lord in prayer. Father, we're gathered together here in your presence this morning because we need to hear from you as your word is preached. And so, Father, we pray that you will be with each and every one of us, that our, 
that our ears will be open and receptive to your truth. That our minds will be renewed as we hear what you have to speak to us this morning. So that our wills will be changed, our lives will be transformed, our hearts then will be inflamed. with the joy of Christ as we continue to live lives of struggle and suffering in this world. So Father, we pray You will be with us, that You will empower Your Word through the Holy Spirit this morning so that each and every one of us will leave this gathering not only knowing that we are saved by God's grace, but prepared to live lives in a cursed and corrupt world that offers no hope or joy or satisfaction. May we look forward then to the return of Christ and live each day expectantly waiting for his return. Father, we ask these things then in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. So what does Christ reveal to us this morning? That we must not tolerate cultural compromise in our church. Say that again. We must not tolerate cultural compromise in our church. We see this as this letter is broken down into four parts. First, we have a sharp sword, followed by a steadfast faith, then a sinful compromise, and finally a sure promise. So let's begin with a sharp sword, which we read of there in verse 12. Of course, here we come to the third of seven letters in the book of Revelation, which have come from Jesus Christ through the Apostle John to these seven churches. And these seven churches represent all of Christ's churches through this age. But each letter, you may notice, follows the same general format. They begin with the church being addressed. Then they describe a relevant aspect of Christ's glorious heavenly reign from his opening vision in chapter 1. Well, next is an expression of appreciation about the church's life and ministry, which is then followed by a warning or a threat of danger that the church is facing as well as a call to repentance. And then finally, a blessing that is promised to those who hear and obey Christ's words in this letter. And that's, of course, the same general format we find here in this letter as well. And so in verse 12, we see which church this letter is addressed to. We read, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos writes. So here is the church of Pergamos, which was another important city there in this region of Asia Minor, what is today modern Turkey, which is around 70 miles further north from Smyrna, who received the last letter, and then about 15 miles inland from the sea. 
But it was this city, Pergamos, that had developed into a great military citadel because of its strategic location on the top of a thousand-foot-high hill. But it also became a major intellectual and religious center. It had a library with more than 200,000 volumes, as well as a great altar to the Greek gods Zeus and Athena, which you can still see today. But what is most important for us to remember here about Pergamos is that it was the official capital city in the province for emperor worship. Because here a temple was built for the Roman emperor Augustus. And so this city was proud to be part of the Roman Empire and their patriotism and loyalty then led to the persecution of Christians who refused to uphold the honor of their own emperor and to worship him. Well, that's a little bit about the city and the church where they are. But who is the author of the letter? And like the other letters, we find them being the words of Christ himself. But how is he identified here in verse 12? Read of him that these things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. Now they had just heard of this in the opening vision of the glory of Christ when it is written of him in chapter 1 verse 16 that out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And so it's now this Christ who's speaking directly to them. Do you remember then what the sword symbolized? Well, the sword symbolized the coming of God's judgment. That it's through the mouth of Christ that comes the proclamation and the execution of God's condemnation for their sin. And so we can immediately see the relevance of this vision to a city with a strong history of military might. Because the sword then represented the power and the authority of the empire which included the execution of the enemies of the empire. But with the church living in this city, what does Christ remind them of? That he is the mighty ruler over all. He is the ultimate authority and power with the two-edged sword. Christ is the one who bears the sword of power and authority over this world. And no other worldly power or authority can change Christ's heavenly reign over all things in this age. Brothers and sisters, this is the Christ who's ruling from heaven. He has all power and authority. And he is the one who will judge the world in righteousness. May we then live our lives in reverent submission to Christ, whatever challenges we may face in this world. Brothers and sisters, it is not right to fear the swords of those with power and authority in this world. Because Christ is the one with the sword in his mouth. So we begin with a sharp sword in verse 12, but then we continue with a steadfast faith that we read of in verse 
13. And since Christ is present with this church, we read that he knows their works. Let's continue reading in verse 13. He says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. What a name for a city. Could you imagine driving down the road and coming to an off-ramp with, a, with an exit sign that said, next exit, Satan's throne? But that's the description that's given to the city. Now, there's one sense, of course, in which we could say Satan has authority and control over the whole earth. Right elsewhere in the New Testament, Satan is called the God of this age. He's called the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. He's called the one who walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So we could say that Satan is at work throughout the entire world, and yet here his throne signifies a special place where his power and authority are exercised. It is then the seat of and where Satan governs because of his influence over what is taking place in the city. You see, as Pergamos was the center of emperor worship in Asia Minor, which persecuted Christians for their refusal to say Caesar is Lord or burn incense to him in worship, Christ here shows them that the emperor's throne is actually the throne of Satan himself. And what happens then as this persecution against the church continues and increases? How do the Christians respond? Well, let's continue reading in verse 13. We read, And you hold fast to my name. They hold fast. Which is a strong word. It means that they refuse to let go. They will not let Christ go. And since a name represents a person to the ancient world here, to hold firm to Christ's name is to hold firmly to Christ himself. But why do they hold fast to his name? Because their hope is found in Christ alone. They know that they are sinners who deserve the judgment of God against them. And yet, in Christ, they have received the very love of God as He takes their place by dying under the very wrath of God on the cross. And so it's as they have looked to Christ, as they have trusted in Christ, as they are believing in Christ, that they know their sins are forgiven, that they're Hope is found that they receive eternal life. And they want nothing in this world to take that hope away. This then is the only hope that is in this world. So I ask you, is this your hope? Have you been forgiven of your sins through Christ and a sacrifice for sinners? 
Look to Christ this morning and see in Christ God's love for you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn away from your sins and repentance. Turn to Christ in faith where you too will share in this hope of salvation from sin and of glory to come in Christ. This is a hope that gives us the strength then hold fast to Christ's name. This church continues trusting in Christ for their salvation even when times get hard. Even when their very lives are threatened. See, they don't give in to pressure to forsake Christ to make their lives easier. But they stay faithful, refusing to renounce their faith in Christ and remaining firmly committed to Christ. It's what we go on to read as, as this verse continues. Christ says to them, And you did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you. So how challenging had it become for this church? They had a brother in Christ there named Antipas who was killed for his faith in Jesus. He remained faithful as a witness of Christ's gospel until his death. And the rest of this church also remained steadfast in the midst of death threats and many hardships. Well, this reminds me of the previous letter that we've already read from the book of Revelation to the church of Smyrna, where in the midst of their growing persecution, Christ says to them in verse 10, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Well, here we see that Antipas now serves as an example of one who was faithful until death. But what brings such hatred for Christ's church? Well, that's how verse 13 ends, because this is a place where Satan dwells. Satan is at work in this city. Satan is at work. In this world, he is the one dwelling in the city. It is, in a sense, his hometown. So what a wicked and evil city this was. And praise God that these Christians were persevering. This sounds like the kind of church I would like to join. Their faithfulness, their steadfast faithfulness in the midst of such persecution and even martyrdom. But that's not the end of this letter, is it? Because we continue then to read of a sinful compromise in verses 14 to 16. You see, even though the church has stayed faithful, Christ still has words of warning for them. And this is the danger for all of us. That we can become so focused on one challenge that we ignore the less immediate or clear threats that are present among us. So what do we read in verse 14? But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. See, in their struggle with persecution, they neglected the false teaching that was coming and growing in their midst. 
So in being concerned with the threats they faced outside of the church, they became blinded to the threats that they faced inside of the church. This church then overlooks false teaching and sinful practices in their membership, allowing this doctrine to spread throughout the church. But who are these who follow the doctrine of Balaam? Well, this isn't literally a man named Balaam. This is a a reference back to the Old Testament with Balaam and Balak. And while we may not be as familiar with this story in the Old Testament, it would have been very common for the Jews to be very familiar with the story. But we read about it in Numbers chapters 22 through 24. Now let's, let's turn there this morning to consider this briefly. Obviously, we won't be reading all of these chapters, but let's read at least of how these two men come together, Balak and Balaam, here in these, the opening verses. So Numbers chapter 22 Verses 1 to 6. Then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this company will lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the fields. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. Then he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. Therefore, please come to me at once. Curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. You see, Balaam was a Gentile prophet who was summoned by the Moabite king Balak to prophesy curses against God's people Israel. So after God then warns this prophet Balaam to prophesy his words and his words alone through an angel of the Lord and a talking donkey, Balaam then prophesies four times, each time announcing God's blessings upon Israel rather than curses as Balak had requested, which frustrated Balak and his plans. This leaves the question then, how did Balaam cause Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel? That's what we read in in Revelation 2. Well, let's turn forward to Numbers chapter 25. Numbers 25, and read the first three verses here of what happens next among the Israelites. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. See what happened? Balaam 
had counseled Beor to have the Israelites be seduced by the Moabite women so that they would sin against God. This is what we go on to read. Let's let's go forward. Numbers chapter 31, verses 15 to 16. Because here Moses becomes upset with the Israelite army and he reminds them of what had just happened in what we read in chapter 25. He doesn't want them to repeat the corruption that had entered their people through the women of Moab. See, these... Israelites, God's people, had joined in the sexual sin of the women of Moab and engaged in idolatrous worship through their sacrifices to the Moabite gods. And we read of this more here as Moses is speaking. Chapter 31. So let's read verses 15 and 16 together. And Moses said to them, Have you kept all the women alive? Look, these women caused the children of Israel, notice, through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident at Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. So do you see how all of this fits together? God would not allow the prophet Balaam to prophesy curses against his people. But Balak, but Balaam counseled Balak in how to seduce and corrupt God's people. And God's people fell for it by entering into idolatrous worship and sexual immorality. And now, the same corruption is taking place in Christ's church in Pergamos. They too are following the same teaching of Balaam through their own idol worship and sexual sin. It's what we go on to read there in verse 14 of Revelation chapter 2. He says that they have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. He goes on to eat things sacrificed to idols. Of course, this may seem strange to us today. We don't go to the grocery store and worry about whether the meat we buy is used in worship rituals of animal sacrifice. We don't when we go and enjoy a meal with others, wonder if our food has been dedicated to false gods in worship. But this was a very real challenge to the Gentile Christians in the Roman Empire. Because animal sacrifices were regularly used in worship where they lived. How would Christians respond? How would they live? Well, later we see of another problem that arises in the church. And it then leads to the apostles meeting together with the elders of the church in Jerusalem as they met to discuss the question of requiring circumcision for Christians. But they eventually send out a letter to the other churches declaring that circumcision doesn't matter. But listen to the end of this letter. And what they go on to say in Acts chapter 15, verses 28 and 29, we read, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. First, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and, second, from sexual immorality. 
If you keep yourselves from these, you'll do well. Farewell. Well, aren't those exactly the two things we find here present in Pergamos? But as we consider the things offered to idols, the Apostle Paul then expands on this instruction as he writes in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10. Because here there is allowance made to eat of the meat that had been offered to idols with a clear conscience, but not when that meat was involved in their cultural feasts of idolatrous worship. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 19 to 20, What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or it is offered to idols as anything? Of course not. He says, rather that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You see, it's not the meat that's the problem. It's sharing in the idolatrous worship that's the problem. And these Christians in Pergamos were apparently enjoying the feasts of the religious festivals in their city so that they wouldn't further alienate themselves or separate themselves from their community and their culture. They figured it was okay, since the idols aren't real, to go ahead and join in the cultural practice of their religious worship and meals to be, continue to be a part of their culture and part of their city. But this compromise with their surrounding pagan culture was actually fellowship with Satan's demons. And they were not practicing Christian liberty, but they were betraying Christ through pagan idolatry. We see that they're not only guilty of idolatry here in this letter, but what else? They're guilty of sexual immorality. Now, this may have been connected to the pagan worship that take took place in the city. But one thing we know is that abusing God's gift of sex is an ongoing struggle for Christians throughout the age. After all, we all know how sexualized our culture is today and how common a temptation sex outside of marriage is for Christians today. But this struggle is nothing new. It was a struggle back in the first century among the churches in Asia Minor, among all the churches of the New Testament. That's why it's frequently mentioned throughout the New Testament. Brothers and sisters, we need to recognize that those following the doctrine of Balaam here haven't merely fallen into error. They have actually fallen away from the faith. Such living was a rejection of God and the salvation they received through Christ. So by compromising with the culture to gain their acceptance, they had forsaken Christ in the process. But not only has this church allowed those holding the doctrine of Balaam to be present with them, who else do we read about? This verse 14 continues. The Nicolaitans, or excuse me, verse 15 we read, thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So here once more we have the Nicolaitans. 
And this was the very same teaching that we had seen the Ephesian church rejected back in the first letter in, in Revelation. But these Nicolaitans have been much more successful here in Pergamos. Now, it is possible that the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and the doctrine of Balaam actually refer to the same false teaching present in the church. There are many who see these as two different descriptions of the same doctrinal teaching. But we simply don't know for sure. Once again, though, we see Christ stating his hatred for this false teaching. And while we may not know exactly what it is, we know that it is wrong and dangerous to the souls of Christ's church to allow this doctrine in among them. But do you know what's interesting to me? When you think of the word doctrine, what comes to your mind? What we believe. What the Bible teaches. Yet the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans are never actually explained, are they? Rather, what we read up here are sinful practices. See, the focus here is on the practical consequences of their false teaching. See, doctrine is more than truths for our minds to understand. But our doctrine then influences and impacts the way we live our lives, which is why doctrine matters and upholding doctrine matters. See, by them tolerating this false teaching in the church, they were threatening the very life of the church. And while they may have been standing strong in the faith, they had forgotten that holding fast to Christ's name includes maintaining devotion to his revealed truth and opposing the enemies of his truth. So what do they need to do? Verse 16, repent, repent. They need to repent to turn away from their sinful toleration of this false teaching and to turn to Christ for forgiveness and cleansing. Because if they don't, look at the result. Or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. In other words, they will come under the very judgment of the one they have named as their Savior. And we later read of Christ's return on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth in Revelation chapter 19. And listen how Christ is described in Revelation 19 verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. See, this is the judgment that will come upon all who compromise with our cultures. Because the culture we live in is not neutral. Our culture is a system that is opposed to God and that revels and rejoices in sin. What we see then here is how we are always living under the pressure to compromise our faith with our culture. 
and to practice syncretism for our society's approval. Where we want to take our Christian beliefs and somehow mix them with our culture's beliefs, with our social practices so that we'll fit in, so that we'll be accepted. Can you think of a better description of evangelical churches today? Well, and sisters, we need to be confronted with this truth because it's all too real of a danger for us. I appreciate how Jim Hamilton summarizes this in his commentary. He writes, Whose judgment do you fear? The Christians in John's audience could avoid the sword of Rome by doing things that would put them in danger of the sword of Jesus. We will all face situations where what this world judges to be right conflicts with what Jesus judges to be right. Whose sword do you respect in that moment? The sword of the world and of the judgment the world might inflict? Or the sharp two-edged sword in the mouth of the Son of Man? Brothers and sisters, there is only one sword that will destroy your soul. And that is the sword that comes out of the mouth of Christ Himself. So we have seen then this sharp sword followed by a steadfast faith and yet a sinful compromise. But this leads us then finally in verse 17 to a sure promise. See, Christ here closes this letter with a call to hear these words from the Holy Spirit and to keep them. Verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So if they don't heed this warning and repent by, rebu- by rebuking and removing these false teachers under church discipline, what will happen? They may lose Christ's presence among them as his church. They may no longer be a true church of Christ at all. And as before, we see that these words apply to all the churches. In other words, all churches are to ask ourselves, are we like the church in Pergamos? Are we those who will tolerate false teaching and sinful practices with compromise in our culture? I think those are words we should all wrestle with and questions we should all think about today. Because this is a warning from Christ to His churches. We must hear what the Spirit is saying to us through this letter this morning. Let's also look at the promise for those who hear Christ's Word and who obey His words by faith. But we go on to read in verse 17. There are those who overcome. To him who overcomes, we will persevere through all of the persecution, through all of the tribulation, through all of the the pressure and temptation that come in Christ. We will overcome. So it's not up to us to overcome. 
It's not up to us to remain faithful. But it's as Christ is at work in us through the Spirit and we hear what the Spirit says and we follow what the Spirit says that we will overcome and persevere. And when we do, Christ here promises two blessings that He will give to all those who overcome by His grace. First, He says, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Now there are scholarly debates over what exactly this gift from Christ to His church is, but frankly I see no reason to delve into this debate this morning. What's clear is that God makes a comparison with how he provided for his people Israel. You remember as they were wandering in the desert for 40 years, how they ate? God gave them manna in the desert so they would continue to be sustained and strengthened while they were waiting to enter the promised land. And then what happened to some of the manna? They placed it in a jar and put it into the very Ark of the Covenant, which then Jewish tradition held would remain in the Ark until God's promises came true and they could once more celebrate a great feast with God himself. In the same way, Christ provides his people with spiritual manna to eat in this world until we enter our heavenly home where we will enjoy the feast of a marriage supper of the Lamb. This then is our hidden manna. And instead of eating things sacrificed to idols and pagan idolatry, Christ here gives us a far greater meal from heaven, which now we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, which we will be observing and enjoying this morning where our souls are fed and nourished and strengthened by Christ's grace until he returns and we will finally feast in his presence. Listen, that's not all. Because there's another promised blessing that we read of here. In verse 17, And I will give him a white stone, And on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So he gives us a white stone with a new name written on it. And again, the exact symbolism of this stone is elusive. But what do we know? Well, stones were used for a lot of things in the ancient world. Stones were used as trophies for victors in competition. Stones were used as tablets to permanently record what was written. And stones were used as tickets to gain admission to feasts. But whatever the specific meaning of this white stone was, we see here is a new name was written on it. And this is tied to God's promise through Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 62, verses 1 and 2, listen. God makes this promise to his people. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest 
until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name with the mouth of the Lord will name. There's a new name given to those who overcome in Christ. But notice that this name is private. It is only known by the one who receives it, which reveals the intimacy in our personal relationship with Christ. The intimacy between Christ and his people. So this intimacy then is far greater than the intimacy that they could ever enjoy through the sexual immorality that they were tempted by and indulging in. Do you see then how the world can only offer poor imitations of what we look forward to in Christ? May we then not settle for these cheap imitations, but patiently wait and look forward to the glorious blessings that Christ promises us. Do you see then, brothers and sisters, that we must not tolerate cultural compromise in our church? We must not tolerate cultural compromise in our church. You know what that means for us? It means we may not be popular. It means we may not have thousands of people joining together with us. This means we may not have a high social standing. This means we may not be culturally relevant. It may even lead to persecution and death. Brothers and sisters, what Christ promises to give us is far greater than the fleeting pleasures of sin and worldliness that we are tempted with in this world. And by God's grace, I am convinced that our church has sought to avoid such cultural compromise. I'm thankful for Cornerstone. But listen, we should never come to a point where we believe this isn't a danger to our church. Let's do a quick check. We'd consider ourselves in the larger reform tradition. Ask yourself this question. How many reform churches do you know that have existed for more than a hundred years in it are still faithfully preaching and rejoicing the gospel of Jesus Christ? I know very few. What's happened? Well, religious liberalism crept in far too many churches and it successfully tempted Christians to compromise with the culture. See, they chose the concerns and credibility of this world over Christ. 
And my prayer is that this will never be true of us. May our church not become spiritual enablers then who will tolerate this cultural compromise. But may our love lead us to confront and correct this false teaching and this sinful practices until Christ returns. May we be a church that receives this warning in the letter to Pergamos so that we will look forward to receiving the sure promise of blessings that Christ gives. Let us pray. Father, we're thankful that you have been so kind and generous and gracious to us that we are not facing the same struggles as the church of Pergamos. But in another sense, that makes it all the more dangerous. May we not then take our eyes off this threat and this temptation May you continue to be at work among us to be those who truly love one another even when it means confronting compromise, even when it means correcting sinful practices, even when it means practicing church discipline. May we be those who don't shy away from Christ and from what it means to be your people, but may our faithfulness in love lead us to steadfastly continue in the faith once for all delivered to the saints and to live lives then of obedience to your word as those who do not find our satisfaction for our joy in the things of this world, in the culture and society of which we live. Father, we find them all abundantly in our Savior. Who has loved us so abundantly and who we look forward to receiving His many blessings in eternity. Father, we pray then.